Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Ladies and gentlemen, on this week's episode of the Rise Together podcast, we are going to push into a hard conversation about race. It is uh, an impossibly difficult thing at times to fully get our arms around what's happening, how we got here what systems and power structures exist to afford it. And uh, we're going to push into it because of, one, it being important, and two, it being the thing that's necessary for us to create the kind of progress and activism inside of anti-racism to actually afford a path forward. We are so fortunate. I'm so grateful that we have a guest today who is an expert inside of this field. Dr. Ed Barron is a diversity and leadership consultant He's an executive coach. He's an accomplished speaker. He's got 30 plus years of having developed his expertise in small nonprofits, in large multinational corporations. He has been working inside of the diversity and leadership space for a very, very long time and is well known for conducting content specific workshops dealing with all aspects of this conversation, a a workshop that in fact he's given not once but twice to the people on our team. He's the chair of the Department of Leadership and Organizational Psychology at Azusa Pacific University, and his teaching specialties include systems and strategic planning for leaders, organizational implications of diversity, and leaders as agent of change. He is a good man. He is a smart man, and he happens to be a friend of mine and our family. He also uh, notably is the father to Brittany Beans Barron, for anyone who is familiar uh, with her awesomeness and the way that she has been such an amazing contributor inside of uh, our space and this community on the Rise stage and beyond. Without further ado, please welcome Dr. Ed Barron. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise together. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Ed Barron to the Rise Together podcast. This is going to be a fantastic and timely conversation. Uh, I could not think of another human being on this planet to wade into 
uh, a conversation around race and where we find ourselves and how we got here. So thank you, Ed, for being here. I appreciate it so, so much. Man, the pleasure is mine. I'm excited to uh, connect and talk about the things that are most important, man, especially timely. Well, you have been doing this work for quite a long time. Uh, as much as, man, there's more relevance and importance to the kind of conversations that we will have today and that you are having in real time with other humans, uh, you've been doing it for a long time. Can you tell me a little bit of how you got started inside of this space of provoking these very important and hard conversations and why it's so important to you? Yeah, well, the evolution uh, actually started probably about 30 years ago. And I say evolution because the conversations evolve, obviously, with context. But gosh, way back to my early years as an engineer in the aerospace industry, uh, working to make sure that contracts were the ability to complete, compete on contracts by minority-owned businesses and women-owned businesses was part of my charter. And, and realized early on, man, that you can give a, a small um, uh, minority-owned company a contract and they don't have the wherewithal to perform it. And before you know it, uh, their reputation fails and they don't get into the contracts. And we had to work on developing those companies. Um, and then in the religious nonprofit space, working on reconciliation for probably a decade or more, and uh, in my current capacity, doing just tons of consulting and coaching around what I like to call anti-racism. But you know, David, it all started, um, I anticipated this question, obviously, and I was thinking that for me, it started as a kid on April um, 5th, 1968. So that date might sound vaguely familiar. It was the day after Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. He was assassinated at about 6 o'clock p.m. West Coast time. And so, you know, the news cycle wasn't 24 hours back in those days. So by the time my family found out about it, it was the next day. I had never experienced so much grief and pain and hurt and brokenness and didn't understand why, because I wasn't familiar with Dr. King. But needless to say, I became familiar with Dr. King, why he was assassinated. And that was really the sort of the impetus and inspiration for me to start exploring what it meant to be black in America, even as a 10 year old boy. And that's really where the journey started. I've been passionate about it literally ever since. Yeah. You know, uh, Ed and I met at church, actually. Uh, there was this time when uh, Rachel and I were in our adoption process, thinking that at the time we would be adopting from Ethiopia and the prospect of having a child of color come into our family had us searching out an intentionally multicultural church to start actually doing life with, community with people who had a different life experience that we might, by pushing into and sitting next to, becoming friends with people who uh, maybe saw the world through a different lens or had a different set of experiences, could inform a little of what we ought to also be considerate of as we were thinking at the time that we'd be raising a daughter uh, of color. And as we sat inside of that multicultural uh, setting, at first, I'm gonna be honest, it didn't feel wildly different than most church settings. It was just good people coming together to worship. And then uh, we, we joined the church in 2013. In 2014, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, right? These names started becoming part of the news cycle in uh, shootings that all of a sudden changed the kind of conversation that we were having with our friends of color who were experiencing and processing the news in a way that was totally different from what had historically been our normal experience. And right. uh, 
and I'm curious because I mean, part of the conceit of wanting to do this podcast and bring people in who maybe have had a different life experience is the man, the blessing that has come in some of the empathy and the, you know, understanding someone else's experience, changing the way that you might also experience things. How much, you know, how much do you give to, or how, how big a deal has community and just doing life with not, you know, following someone on social, but like actively right. participating in up close, hard asking questions sometimes where you might have to start with my apologies for probably not getting this totally right. No. Uh, how important does that end up being, especially inside of times like these? No, you're, you're, you're right on, uh, Dave. And thank you for the background too. And talking about this community of people that came together under a common purpose, because what you're expressing, in my opinion, is the most important aspect of having effective movement and even effective conversation on the interpersonal level. And that's the fertile ground of relationship. With, with, without that, um, we kind of reduce these kind of back and forth to a zero sum game, right? I'm, I'm motivated to get my point across and you're motivated to get your point across. But in the context of relationship, in the context of community, and there's room for error, there's room for growth, there's room for admission, there's room for vulnerability, right? There's room to press. You know, some of the, some of the, the toughest fights I had was with my younger brother, right? We're only two years apart, one year in school, but, you know, kind of at the end of the day, I knew that no matter how hard we punched each other or how vigorously we wrestled, he, he would be there the next day because he loved me, right? And so even if the person doesn't agree with you, that's not what's important, it's having the space to be heard, and so if we can continue to water the ground of a relationship, kind of starting there in those people that are in your sphere, David, not worried about changing people that are way out there, which is kind of social media target, right? We bounce off these, these unreceptive hearts that are already closed off, trying to convince them with a distant missive. But the fact of the matter is there are people right around us that we need to be connecting with, a lot of which, a lot of whom I should say, are different than us. I mean, one of the things that has been such a wild blessing for our friendship and the relationship we have with your daughter, Brittany Beans Barron, who I think many people in the community are probably familiar with, is the grace with which you have afforded us to press into conversations that are inevitably uncomfortable, that I've made some progress on this journey and I can still kind of hold that I am going to forever for the rest of my life be on a journey to get closer to understanding in a way that a younger version of myself may have thought I understood what it means to grow up as someone of color, what race has meant historically and the systems that exist inside of it. Uh, for anyone who's listening, if you uh, identify as this being a hard conversation or uncomfortable kind of thing, okay, uh, I think that's just kind of a normal reality inside of something that historically has been harder for any of us to totally get our hands around, but finding people inside of your actual life that can afford you an audience for your questions, man, it has been such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And uh, we've just now subsequently, as a part of the Hollis Company, done the three days of work just this last month. And um, I can tell you, for the people on the team who were able to experience it, super, super powerful, really, really hard. Um, but that we were able to step into and have this conversation, man, it was just such a gift. I do wanna walk through a little of what we yeah. walked through as a team, because I think it's important for people to appreciate some of how you have to try and navigate this big, huge conversation in pieces. 
I'm interested just to kind of understand how you've approached having these hard conversations and why you think it's so hard to talk about race in the first place. Yeah, yeah, no, great. Dave, let me start by saying a couple of things. One is let's, let's try for our sakes and the audience sake to uh, sort of, sort of separate something that's hard or difficult from something that's wrong or bad. So hard, difficult doesn't mean wrong, bad. It just means that there's a, a lack of familiarity with something that makes it challenging, right? And this race is not the only thing that's hard to understand. I mean, most of us, maybe not most of us, I struggled with math in, in high school because it was difficult, right? Didn't make it wrong. It just was something that I wasn't familiar with in my context. So let's separate that. And then I want to acknowledge something too, because you talk, you know, you're talking a lot and, and thank you, man. You, you're, you're a blessing, brother, talking about the, the history of our relationships as families. The one thing that you and your family did without necessarily saying the words, but this was the posture of your life, was help me understand. And so when someone invites understanding before being understood, it feels just like that. It feels like an invitation. I'm going to now move forward to you. So just thank you for that. And that's a little bit of a tip for those listening to, to seek to understand before being understood. Um, you know, our, our, our goal for the training almost sounds understated, right? To set you on a path of continued self-education is like, well, shouldn't the goal of understanding racism 101 be understanding racism 101? Or shouldn't it be how to become an anti-racist? Or shouldn't it be you know, ultimately, I think what we want to spark is this sort of aha moment where, hey, I can become more comfortable, if you will, with these conversations, the more that I learn, the more that I learn about the history, the contextual history of the United States of America, uh, the, the more I learn um, about the longevity of some of these issues. And so even though I hear about an Eric Garner, uh, if I'm not African-American, I hear about Eric Garner, and maybe it's a blip in a news cycle that goes away in 24 hours before, for me as an African, African-American male, I'm hearkening back to Emmett Till in the 1950s. And so it feels like just, it, it feels like another murder, another lynching. But without that historical context, I really can't connect that to anything that's significant. It feels like, well, that's just another murder, right? And not to trivialize that, uh, but it's difficult to talk about because most of us lack the historical context and understanding that make these conversations relevant. And so that's why we selected the overall goal of understanding racism 101 to inspire the attendee, to inspire the participant to continue learning. And, and that would mean too, because you know, we're going to get to the end, right? Developing your anti-racist plan in there, there's a section for your education, your, your continued education, reading and, and talking with others and, and watching videos and movies and understanding. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is anyone who's had any formal education, anyone who considers themselves, you know, smart in some kind of way may believe that they have a pretty good handle on all the things that have happened that have led to the state of the world and the situation that we find ourselves inside of. But the first day of work was really looking backward at how we got here. And I remember on that first day, you said you can't effectively interpret content without setting appropriate context. Right. And 
if you're operating, right, if you are someone who believes themselves to understand all of the ways that things have worked or reading history books that may have been in fact written with certain bias in how certain right. stories were told, your belief in context or that you have a handle on context is compromised in a way that will not allow you to interpret the content. So talk us through a little bit of how that first day, that work of trying to actually educate us, but ultimately send us on a mission of furthering our education of understanding what led us here is such an important foundation for anyone who wants to try and do any kind of anti-racist work down the road. Absolutely, and thank you for uh, leveraging uh, that, that sort of framework of it's virtually impossible to get content right, absorb it without understanding what formed that, right, which is context. And so uh, imagine, you know, for the listener trying to squeeze 400 years of history into about an hour and a half, right? It's, it's yeoman's work to say the least, and so that's why we want you to continue. But the idea of creating these timelines and what we do is we try, to, we try to walk through specific times in history that are blocked by certain events, 1492, when we all believe that Columbus sailed the ocean blue and discovered, quote, the United States of America, you know, up until the early 1700s when chattel slavery, right, the trading of human lives for profit uh, became uh, sort of exploded on the U.S. Uh, in, in the colonies. and uh, three more sections of time after that. And the idea being is, can we identify in these times things that happened that were uh, considered to be racist? And we'll, we'll get to kind of a good interpretation of racist and racism a bit later. But suffice it to say, those things that were racist in our country and those things that were anti-racist or resistant to racism. And most of us can't put a darn thing on that timeline because our history didn't teach us that, right? I, I've worked with several clients and I, I, I typically would ask them, how many of you have ever taken a black histories course in, in, in college or maybe even high school and usually no hands go up? And then I say, well, how many have taken a white history course in either college or, and no hands go up? I said, well, every hand in the room should come up because the history that we learn, quite frankly, is written from a white dominant supremic narrative. It just is. Doesn't mean it was mean-spirited or mean-intended. It just means that the victor writes history, right? And people of color have not been in the position of being, quote, the victor having power. And so walking through that, and, and you know, we invite you, okay, this is not a test, right? <laughs> so it's not a pass or fail. Uh, take out your cell phones, get onto your favorite search engine and Google what happened in these years and then populate that. And you start to see the light come on when people begin to write these events down and, and realizing that there was a lot going on that we never heard about. And so we walk all the way up into the 1960s uh, or 1970s. And by the time we're populating these timelines, you start to see people realize that, okay, we're dealing with the historic narrative that now we're able to take a George Floyd and place in that context and understand why the revolution is still going on. How is this movement from the context of history playing out differently than say the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s or you know, anything that may have existed at any point in time? This feels different. Why do you, do you think it's different? And, and if it is, why do you think it's different? I think actually, Dave, I think it's a lot like the civil rights movement of the 60s and I'll tell you why. 
the participation across racial lines in this particular movement is staggering. The worldwide participation in this movement is staggering. And so what we saw with the civil rights movement was um, the, the, the luminaries, the leaders of the civil rights movement knew that it had to be more than a black people's movement. It had to be joined with conscious, um, courageous uh, white participants. They knew that. And so what happened as a result of the third, uh, uh, the second trek over the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, in Selma, Alabama, was that Bloody Sunday was televised. And so what happened is the, is the, 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 the reality of the struggle came into homes and people had to decide, what do we do with this now? Right? Similarly, with this movement, of course, television in the news cycle has been around now for decades, but I think what makes this different, honestly, and sociologists have been looking at this as well as psychologists, is the COVID-19 pandemic. In part, Dave, because we don't have our detractors and we don't have our meditators. We can't turn the NFL on or the NBA, or, and, and I'm not faulting those, but typically when there's tragedy in the US, what do we do? The, the, the show must go on, the games must resume because America needs to remember that it's America. We don't have those things now. So we are inundated like they were in the 60s with the Evan Pettis Bridge Bloody Sunday incident. We're seeing these things and we're recognizing we can't get away from it. I think people at their core, Dave, are empathetic. I think people want to, they're justice oriented, right? The, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it always bends towards justice, so said Dr. Martin Luther King. That's our, that's our, our birthright is justice. And so I think we're, we're having a combination of things, um, a proliferation of unfortunate murders, the opportunity to sit in that for long periods of time without distraction, the modeling of what resistance and protest now looks like, and then having to ask ourselves, see, it's harder, it's harder to stay in neutral. It's harder to stay inactive when your conscience is pricked and you see examples of people moving. Now it's time for you to determine what do I do with that? And we're seeing people say, not on my watch. Yeah, no, so good. And in a weird way, uh, it's hard to find, you know, silver linings or gratitude of COVID-19. But if one of the silver linings byproducts ends up being that in the absence of distraction, it's affording conversations about things that may not have otherwise come to this level, this surface, yeah. um, that's an okay thing to see as a, as a side benefit to a, you know, a hard thing in and of itself. On the second day of the training, we pivot from now having some foundational appreciation for the context that allows us to interpret the content into uh, a conversation around power and privilege. Yeah. And so as much as, uh, I'll be honest, for me, again, as I am someone who is also on a journey to understand racism and am still judging critically my own privilege, um, this was a hard day of work because when you dive into and ask you know, our team or ask anyone who's listening right now to think about and process the structures of power and the emotions around privilege, it's uncomfortable. It, it is just a, it's an inherently uncomfortable thing. And so for me, I know that I've really had to try and learn about the systems of oppression that were all around me that many times I was not even necessarily aware of 
-hmm. or maybe didn't notice in part because of the privilege that I am afforded uh, existing and had to start asking a better set of questions, start spending more time with people who are not inside of that same space of privilege where they are, of course, uh, affected every day by those systems of power or, 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 or not the recipients of that privilege. Uh, one of the things that we did that I thought was really uh, a helpful exercise was some brainstorming around owning our IRO and our IRS, right? Internalized racial oppression and internalized racial superiority. Right. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what those two things are? Because for me, there were a lot of light bulbs that went off in the midst of my own journey. Yeah, it'll, it'll probably be helpful to just to sort of draw this word picture of, of coming out of day one and recognizing that in addition to setting the context, we want to do some work around definitions. So we we're all thinking about things the same way. Not that these definitions we provided are the end all, but we believe that they're solid definitions around things like power and, and privilege and policy and racism and things like that. So that when these words come up throughout the time that we had together, we would at least be thinking similarly about those, right? Which would result in some really, really powerful conversations and feedback. And one of those happened to be around the ideas of internal racialized oppression and internal racialized superiority. Typically, those things find their homes distinctly on rate on the different ends of, of the racial spectrum, if you will. So internal racialized superiority would be something that would be characterized in the life of the dominant culture or white America, right? So it's this idea of privilege. And to the extent that we internalize that really means it becomes a part of our being and becomes normalized. We don't recognize that it's something that results from the myriad inequities produced by racist power and racist policy and racist ideas in our country from 1492, right? We don't recognize that. It's just who we are, right? How many times have you heard a white person say, well, I'm just white? So it's become so normalized and it's just white. So that's racialized uh, superiority, right? Uh, and white becomes a standard, right? So there's nude colored band-aids or nude tights. Well, my nude and the nude that shows up on those band-aids are two different kinds of nude, right? Um, when I used to have hair back in the day, I remember those times. I had a lot of hair too, dude. I was rocking a big fro back in the 70s. It was hard for me to find hair care products and barbershops. I literally had to drive to a certain part of town, right? So it says that I am now non-standard, I am other which supports the racialized superiority because you can go anywhere and get your hair good. You can go to any store and buy your hair hair products and nude band-aids will blend into the tone of your skin, of your skin, no problem at all. On the other side of the spectrum is internalized racial oppression. It, it's when that oppressed group, in this case, specifically African-Americans, internalize or normalize the way that they are inequitably viewed in society, that they aren't as valuable, that they aren't as smart, that they aren't as capable, uh, that they aren't as um, uh, uh, integral to what goes on in society. We measure ourselves against the standard of whiteness. Right, and we really saw that in the 40s and the 50s with the straightening of the hair and and these kinds of things that aren't really subtle. It says in order to be sort of civilized and assimilated, 
you got to take on sort of these factors and ideals and perceptions of white America in order to be valued by our society. That's an internalized racial oppression. And what it does is it really, really, really wipes out the very essence and core of who we are as humans, right? My blackness is a part of my humanity. It should never be anything that I relegate to a notion of needing to be transformed or redeemed, right? It should be embraced as should your history, heritage, and culture. But those are the effects of racialized uh, superiority and internalized racial, internal racialized oppression. Both, both, Dave, are toxic. I mean, one of the things I think was so eye-opening for almost everyone, uh, every white person on our team uh, was hearing a little bit of the stories around how these things, how these systems, we're gonna talk about systems next, have created uh, this single idea that white is normal and that everyone else is other. Let's, let's talk about systems. I, I, sure, I, sure. One of, those, one of the lines uh, that, man, uh, just stuck with me so much. Uh, when it comes to race, there's a couple different definitions, but the one that you know I think we stuck on was a set of policies and practices that by design are leaned into to produce a certain outcome. And the, the line that you used that I just like, it blew my mind. A system is perfectly designed to deliver that outcome that it produces. Even if it's bad, it was perfectly designed to deliver that outcome. So rather than complaining about the outcome, you've got to take a closer look at the system that produced the outcome. And in that, we start talking about this iceberg. I would love for you to talk about like the iceberg analogy and just a little bit about systems in general. So I'm a, um, a systems analyst. I teach that in higher education. I've been drawn to systems ever since my early years in my professional career because I understand that it's not necessarily about all the, in, the independent pieces, it's how all those independent pieces, whatever they are, it's how they operate together. It's how they relate together. And what they produce is just a product. What's more important is what is the system doing? What are the components of the system? And so the iceberg framework that we pick, and we can get an iceberg in our mind, we usually see this, this huge piece of beautiful sort of triangular structure that emerges from the surface of the water. Um, and most of us, when we think about icebergs, we think about it was an iceberg that sunk the Titanic, right? Uh, which is interesting because the Titanic was heretofore uh, heralded as being an unsinkable ship. But it comes into contact with this tremendous iceberg, suffers irreparable damage, and sinks to the tune of loss of hundreds of lives. And what I like to point out about the iceberg, Dave, is that the part of the iceberg that sunk the Titanic was below the surface. It wasn't, it wasn't the part that we marvel at above the surface. So consider the part above the surface, uh, all the things that we see in the news cycle, all the names that you mentioned, the Sandra Blands, the um, uh, George Floyds, the Tamir Rice, on and on and on. Those are the tip of the iceberg, literally. And so we see them when we think there's nothing beneath it. And if we can just chisel away at this top of this iceberg, we'll be okay. But what's really happening and what's holding these incidents, these um, violent acts, if you will, what's holding them in place is well below the surface of the water. So let's dive down for a minute, if you will, right? Uh, first of all, I want to note, as we did in the training, as we do with all of our clients, 
one of the reasons we don't get in that water, you asked the question earlier, why is this so hard? The reason we don't get in that water because it's cold, it's dark, and it's deep. And it's easier to stay on the surface and chip away at what we see. But below the surface, uh, anchoring that iceberg is what we call racist power. And racist power at its essence will always be self-serving. The reason that humanity decided to enslave other humans was for self-promoting or self-serving or uh, self-interest. It's the only reason it happened. There is no other reason. We need these things done and we're gonna have you do it for us. It was self-interest. Layered on top of the racist power, Dave, is racist policy. And racist policy are those uh, laws and constructs and procedures and things of that nature that we begin to write and produce, spoken and unspoken, that serve the self-interest of the racist power. So a real quick study of our constitution would reveal that there was a point in time in our constitution where it was legal to enslave humans. In our, in our, in, in our, in our nation's governing legal document, it was written in their provision that it was okay for people to own people, right? Just a high level example of policy. Um, on top of the racist policy, are what we call racist ideas. And racist ideas are those things that you have to generate to keep this thing in place. So you're generating things like black people aren't smart, black people are lazy, black people are violent, uh, black people want handouts, black people are unmotivated, black women are hypersexual, black men will rate, rate white black women. Those kinds of racist ideas that people consume, right, consume, and then it allows them to support the policies, which then keeps in place the racist power. And what happens in the midst of this is we are now othering people big time. We are othering people. And we like to say that whenever you other someone, the last domino to fall is violence. That's where you get the Oscar Grants, right? Uh, that's where you get the Trayvon Martins, right? That's where you get the right, on and on and on. So what breaks through the surface of the water, these incidents are a product of centuries of racist power, writing racist policies, reinforcing them through racist ideas that allows you to now kill someone and then say, well, they were violent, they were threatening my life, they were on and on and on. Inside of some of the structures that help support or don't help support, however you want to say it, yeah. uh, the, 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 the things that exist that afford people to think the way that they might, uh, you find things like education, you find things like justice system, you find things like healthcare. Can you give just a few examples of some of the ways that policy or the ways that power sure. have influenced the structures that have afforded the, 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 the racist, racist ideas yeah. to exist in the first place. Right, right, right. So let's just take uh, education and start with the Supreme Court ruling back in the uh, late 1940s, Plessy versus Ferguson, that resulted in uh, the separate but equal law being added to the books uh, of, of, of the federal government. And what that basically meant was, um, we're gonna, we're gonna not integrate the races, we're gonna keep them separate, 
uh, because understanding that's 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 good for the racist power not to commingle with a less um, um, intelligent race, if you will. We're going to keep them separate, but we're going to equal. And we all know that separate was never equal, right? And so there was inequities in every aspect of life, from healthcare to education, on and on and on. So fast forward to 1954 with um, Brown versus Board of Education, which in essence desegregated schools, but also began to desegregate society, right? That was the idea. But what most of us don't recognize, Dave, is that with Brown versus Board, um, schools weren't desegregated. Black schools were closed and black students were sent to white schools. What happened to those black teachers? They lost their jobs, they lost their livelihoods. And so that wasn't really segregated. So we're talking about now these, these powers and structures that perpetuate inequity, right? And so you, you, you're having these black kids carry the burden, the cognitive burden of being in a place where they know they're not wanted, learning a curriculum that wasn't developed with any consideration to them and expected to succeed. When they did not succeed, for obvious reasons, the racist ideas were perpetuated. See, they're not like us. They can't learn with us, right? So now we've got these desegregation rules, but we also have now this thing called redlining and public, uh, social public policy that doesn't give Black folks access to the same financial wealth it takes to buy homes. And so they wind up congregating in these government low income neighborhoods, which began to be called ghetto and all the negative connotation that go with that. Schools that are now funded or supposed to be funded through property tax, public schools, not a lot of property being owned. So the schools are woefully underfunded. You, you're starting to get the picture, right? And so when you have these underperforming schools and high truancy and dropout and pregnancy, what does that do, Dave? It says it reinforces what? The racist idea. See? See? They're just not as capable as we are. Right? That's just one example. We can talk about healthcare. We can talk about the criminal justice system. But that's, just, that's, that's why our goal is keep learning. Keep learning. And you'll find out. So here's one thing that racist ideas require. Racist ideas only require believers. They don't require thinkers. Racist ideas doesn't want thinkers. Because if you thought for a moment, wait a minute, I think we're all created equal. I think we all have the, I mean, none of this is, is biological. None of this is genealogical, right? Black people aren't biologically inferior, right? We are, you and I, brother, with your handsome self on the other side of this call, you and I are 99.9% .9 exactly the same. I don't know what that one-tenth of a percent is, right? Maybe that's the white and black thing. I don't know. I want all of it, Ed. I mean, I, I love that we are that much the same. Yeah, we, we, we it are. Means that I am getting smarter just by being more like you. I'm here for it. And likewise, man. And likewise. So, so none of this is biological, but the racist ideas, if you think about them, you can begin to unravel them. But what happens is people consume racist ideas because they need to believe something, right? So that's why we're painstaking in our historical context and our definitions to promote thought and not just belief. One of the things I just thought was so fascinating is you can see a domino from 1954 still playing out today in how 
school funding or teacher turnover or out of date textbooks or racially based, you know, testing bias. Uh, yeah. it, it, all of those things exist because of a string of things that have existed. And the only way to change them from existing in the future is to address them now. Right. And if, you know, so like maybe that's just an education, but you could, like you say, do the same inside of the justice system with mandatory minimums or yes. racial profiling or with heavy policing. You have to understand how those things came to be and why they've been perpetuated for as long as they have been. Right. But at least bringing it into your consciousness maybe affords you an opportunity to become a thinker and in that thinking affect the kind of policy that maybe disrupts the power at the base of the iceberg. So yeah, uh, absolutely. If, if you're not if you're not thinking about these things, Dave, and just adopting and consuming racist ideas, um, when when a, a George Floyd happens, you're able to relegate that to uh, that's just one bad apple of a cop. You're able to do that because you have no historical context, right? You haven't you haven't thought critically about power, policy, and ideas, or you've not been exposed to it, right? But once you do, you know that, okay, it doesn't mean that all cops are bad. Our son is a cop, so I know all cops aren't bad. But what it says is that there's a policing philosophy that is carried through from the origins of policing, which, which originated with slave catchers. That's how police force started, with slave catchers, right? Uh, so if you think about, and, and there was a law in the books, Dave, that said, if you catch a slave and he dies in the process of recapture, you're exonerated from any kind of punishment or prosecution. Wow. That sounds very familiar, <laughs> very familiar. Um, uh, so we're wanting, uh, and, and this all sounds very overwhelming, right? In terms of, okay, you're talking about centuries of power policy and ideas how do I begin to unravel them? How do, how, what difference can I make? Right? That's the question of the day. That, that's the question of the day. I mean, one of the things, again, that you said that has stuck with me, and for anyone who's listening and has the same question, the idea of neutral being a thing that people, I think, at times can um, justify, like, hey, I'm supportive. I'm just not being active. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, the moving sidewalk, the inertia yeah. that we have to walk against to actually yeah. afford the kind of progress that we might hope for? Yeah, so sociologist Beverly Daniel Tatum uh, is credited with this, with this idea of saying that we are all born into this society and placed on a moving sidewalk of racism. She wrote this in her book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? So we're all placed on this moving sidewalk of racism. She doesn't attempt to argue whether or not there is racism. That's a given for her. And she says, and unless you turn around and start walking vigorously and intentionally and aggressively against that moving sidewalk, then you're gonna go with the flow of all those things that support racism. There is no neutral. And what's, what's interesting, Dave, is that when we first conceptualize this idea of there's no neutral, it had to do with, um, many of our clients and people that we work with and sort of the intake sessions we do, we're hearing from the white participants, well, I'm not a racist, right? I'm not a racist. And what they're saying in that is, I've not actively participated in hate crimes or calling people the N word or discrimination or whatever. And so when we thought about what does it mean to be not racist, what people are really saying is I'm neutral. I'm not actively resisting 
but I'm just, I'm not actively participating. And Tatum, Tatum's example said, if you're not actively resisting, you're passively participating at minimum. Right? Which, by the way, is a, is a hard thing for anyone to hear because oh, there yeah. is, I think, uh, like humanity defensiveness of, no, 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 I'm not, but this is the point. I mean, th if there is a point, this is the point that that's right. not actively participating in something that walks against the current is passive participation in a racist system, in racist power that, that just exists. It's not a thing that can be debated. It just right. exists. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the, um, the pablum that we are fed as a society that inoculates us against action is personal comfort, right? So we're all fed the pablum of personal comfort. That's what it's all about, right? And if we're, and if we're comfortable, then the world's okay. And you've said, I don't know how many times through the course of this podcast, you've alluded to the idea that this is uncomfortable. This is difficult. So I'm not a neuroscientist by any stretch, but I know a little bit about the way the brain works in terms of one of the most powerful parts of our brain in the rear of our cranium is called the basal ganglia is really that part of our brain where sort of memory and, and rote behavior is stored, right? And, and we like that. We like to be able to know you know, where we left something and what time to get up and those kinds of things that are kind of routine for us. It makes life easy and efficient. But the part of the brain responsible for decision-making and action is the prefrontal cortex right in the front of our brain, right? And the only way that dude is developed is by disruption and challenge. So we can sink back into this comfort and hold on to that. And that's our proclivity, right? That's what we want to do. But the fact of the matter is, if we're going to get after this, we gotta do some thinking and that's gonna be hard, right? So turn around on the escalator, moving sidewalk, whatever you wanna call it, start heading upstream. The question then becomes, right? Well, I, I was gonna reflect on something we talked about earlier in terms of what makes this movement time maybe a little bit different, right? It's longevity, it's depth of participation. I think people are recognizing, and I'm listening to the rhetoric and I'm reading a lot, that people are recognizing this isn't just about saving white people, it's saving black people. This is about saving humanity, right? And so white people are recognizing that when there's, when there's an injustice anywhere, it's a threat to justice everywhere. That includes me, right? So, so what we don't want are, are in, this, in this activism sphere is for, say, white people to fight for the rights of black people. Uh, that's going to be a uh, a, certainly a valued outcome, but we want you to fight for the right that you're being denied to be a whole person because as long as you are, you are under the influence of internal racialized superiority, you're not, you're not operating in your whole humanity because your felt need to grow, develop, evolve, suffer loss, but still be relevant. If, if, you're, not in, if you're not encountering that, then you're not engaging your full humanity. So I'm I'm hopeful that what's giving this movement the longevity that we're seeing is a realization that this is not just about black liberation. This is about the liberation of humanity. Yeah. So acknowledging that it's hard, that it's going to take work, it requires energy, that we have to do it. It still ends up being something that I think a lot of white people are frankly self-conscious of knowing how to start this journey. The, plenty of people on our team were representing an interest to reaching out to their friends who are black or someone inside of their community to actually start 
making some of the progress on the sidewalk the opposite way. Um, but they don't, you know, like necessarily know how to do it well. They're nervous that they're going to make a mistake. What's the best advice you'd give to a listener who's not a person of color, who wants to be supportive of the black community, but doesn't know where to start? Yeah. So, so in the training that you were exposed to and in the digital guidebook that basically tracks the same uh, content, it ends up with your ability to create your anti-racist plan. Right. So we all know that in order to get anything accomplished, develop a habit, uh, you all are great at encouraging your audiences around 90 day challenges, giving things time to really sink in and become become habit. Right. Tapping into that part of our brain that loves routine. Um, you need a plan, something that you can you can refer to and bounce off others. And so uh, that plan uh, has um, has several sections to it but i think the important part is we want we want folks to start writing something down and it could be as simple dave it could be as simple as i'm going to read some more books right and so we provide a, a book list that you can find on our websites and our instagram pages uh, great place to start we encourage people to watch a film or a documentary just expose yourself pique your curiosity it's not a one-size-fits-all i would not recommend finding a black tutor uh, so, so black folks are really, really, really weary in general of tutoring white people on how to do this work. We've been on the short end of the stick, right? And we're uh, battling our own dual consciousness to borrow from W.E.B. Du Bois. But, but there may be a friend in your sphere. You know, we're friends. We can talk and have open conversations. I don't feel that weighty at all. Uh, but, I, but, I, but I don't want to feel responsible for your personal growth in this area. I can direct you, right? Yeah. Uh, another another thing we suggest is, uh, as you all did, you work through your timelines, right? And so in your timelines, you were exposed to different policies and ideas and, and discoveries. What if you went back to that thing and said, how is that still playing out today? And can I get involved with something that resists that? So um, you've heard the story about the starfish on the beach, right? And they're all washed up and the little boys tossing the starfish back and a guy comes along and said, what are you doing, son? He says, I'm trying to save these starfish there. He says, well, you can't possibly save them all. And he picks one up and throws it in and says, yeah, but I saved that one. Yeah, but I saved that one. So um, you've heard of death by a thousand paper cuts. I'm, I'm hoping for life um, through a, a thousand micro actions. And so I want to leave the listeners with the idea of what you do matters, even if it's self-education, that matters. Because what you're going to pass on to those that are in your sphere is something enlightened and not something darkened. And we need more light energy than we need dark energy. Yeah. There's so much heaviness in all of this. It's such important work. Are you, are you hopeful of this being something that will actually afford the kind of change that's necessary. I, I know the, the long arc is long. It does, in fact, bend towards justice. But um, talk about hope. How, how does hope show up inside of a season like this? Yeah, um, you, you have to, I think, inherently look for hope. I don't know that hope is necessarily just this inert emotion. There needs to be some indicators. They don't have to be huge, right? But I think there are some huge indicators that are reason for hope, right? Um, there's a worldwide movement happening now. And one of the 
benefits of being, quote, the most powerful nation on the planet is that people watch us. And what we do uh, makes worldwide news, right? And so there's an engaging aspect of that. I'm, I'm hopeful with the amount of, and the depth and the level of conversations uh, that are happening, I'm, I'm hopeful because of everyone that we engage with, there's a, there's a different level of expectation on their part. They're not just looking to check the box and say, see, we did diversity training, but they are really looking more for transformation than they are for training, right? Tr training has a very utilitarian outcome to it. Train me and now I can do this and I'm going to be better for that. Transformation has an element of change to it, right? Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about at the essence, we're talking about change and people are wanting to change. And, and by the way, that's probably, Dave, at the root of the difficulty of this is we don't like change. Yeah. We're change resistant. And so I'm extremely hopeful on a number of points. Um, and I think not least, not the least of which is the, uh, the longevity of the movement. It continues, continues, continues to move. I am here for it, Ed. My goodness, Dr. Ed Barron, what a blessing to just sit and have a conversation about hard things, but important things, and uh, just lay a little bit of the context for how, if you as a listener are interested in exploring your own journey towards actively participating in anti-racist momentum, pushing against the, the sidewalk that is moving towards racism, um, there are ways to do it. And if somebody who's listening wants to understand what you do better or follow you or get any resources? Is there a place that you might direct them inside of your world? Yeah, for sure. Thank you. So uh, you can find us about everything I've talked about on uh, my website, dredbaron.com. Uh, you can link there to a digital guide that people can do a self-directed study or do it in a group. Uh, it's called Exploring or um, Understanding Racism 101 basically the same curriculum we took your team through. Uh, you can follow me on uh, edbaron12, at edbaron12 on Instagram, and I'll link to my bio. You can find resources there. Uh, I do a lot of work. I'm, I'm infa infamously or famously known as Britt Barron's father, and I'm okay with that. And, and, and if you play your cards right, man, you'll be known as, you know, Jackson Sawyer Ford, Noah's dad, you know, all of the above. And let me tell you, man, there's nothing better, but, uh, uh, at uh, at Britt Barron, you can find resources there or her, on her res, um, on her website, uh, BrittBarron.co. So you can find us there. The work that we do, linking to uh, resource and information, we'd love to connect, man. That's awesome. We're going to put these links into the show notes. So anyone who's listening, you can hit those show notes or go directly to the links that the good doctor here has just provided us. Ed, you are a gift in my life. You are a gift to this podcast. And I'm just so, so grateful that you afforded us the time and your wisdom today. Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you. My pleasure, man. Let's do it again. We will do it. We will do right it. On. Right, have yourself a good day. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye now. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.